0: Surge Talk is an educational podcast series designed to support the undergraduate surgical curriculum in Trinity College Dublin and may not reflect the curriculum of other universities. This podcast series is designed for educational purposes and is not a source for medical advice or expert opinion. You should consult your physician or other healthcare professional if you are seeking medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.
1: Hello and welcome to Surge Talk, a surgical podcast for medical students from Trinity College Dublin. My name is Susie O'Neill, I'm lecturer in surgery, and joining me today will be Miss Claire Donahue.
0: Oh hi Susie, thanks for having me.
1: The many of you will know Miss Donahue as a consultant Upper GI surgeon in St James's and a Trinity senior lecturer. She's joining us today for our second episode, Approach to Dyspepsia. So to start off, a forty year old female presents with a one month history of intermittent burning sensation in her abdomen. What other questions would you like to ask regarding her symptoms?
0: Um, So the first thing obviously is to start with an open approach to the patient so letting them kind of tell you what brought them into you and why they were concerned about their symptoms before asking any specific questions so when they're talking about their symptoms I'd be listening carefully um, for what they're specifically describing as dyspepsia so what, what the actual symptoms are and I'd also be listening to them about how long it's been there for and whether it's a new symptom or a symptom that they've had before. So to be sure that I'm approaching it right, I suppose what I'm thinking about when I'm evaluating somebody who might have dyspepsia is whether their symptoms fit with the the symptoms that are dyspeptic symptoms. So there bothersome epigastric pain, which is often burning in nature, or bothersome bloating, which is often postprandial or after eating, and early satiation, which is where you eat smaller amounts because you feel fuller quicker. So if patients have any of those three symptoms for um, usually a minimum duration of four or six weeks, then they meet the criteria to to fit for having dyspepsia, so that helps me kind of narrow into how I'm going to think about it. So I think this lady has described that she has a burning sensation in her abdomen, so I think, particularly in the epigastric region, so I think she fits with dyspepsia from that point of view. The other final thing that I'm listening out for and then I'll ask some specific questions about are whether the patient has any alarm symptoms um, for dyspepsia, so just to go through the alarm symptoms for when patients have dyspepsia there where they have dyspepsia and also any of the following symptoms like unintentional weight loss, which I'd usually quantify as at least 5% of their body mass over the last six weeks, whether they have any dysphagia or dynophasia, which would point to having a problem with the esophagus or perhaps a mechanical problem there, which is a cancer, whether they're having persistent vomiting, whether they have any signs or symptoms that tell me that they're having GI bleeding or anemia whether they have a family history of an upper GI cancer in a first-degree relative, so that's somebody who's either their parents or their brothers and sisters, and if they have a history of an upper GI malignancy, so anything from the esophagus all the way down in the upper part of the digestive tract, including pancreatic cancers, or whether they have persistent vomiting as a symptom. The other thing to think about when patients have dyspepsia is their age. So if this is a new onset symptom in somebody who is, the guidelines vary for this, so it could be over 50, over 55, or even over 60 years, then you're a little bit more concerned that this might be a significant problem like a GI malignancy. So if a patient is older and they have a new onset dyspepsia, then that itself is an alarm feature.
1: So she does describe the burning sensation as being mainly in the epigastric region but sometimes it can migrate to the right upper quadrant and she does say that it's burning in nature. It's worse before meals and it often wakes her from sleep. It can be relieved by eating and is often associated with abdominal bloating. So at this stage what would be your differential diagnosis and what further questions would you like to ask?
0: The symptoms that she describes are symptoms that fit with dyspepsia and I recognise talking to people who have dyspepsia that the vast majority of people who have symptoms have functional dyspepsia which is something that we don't really understand very well in Western medicine. I think we should conceive of it as a disorder of the gut-brain axis or the interaction between the gut and the brain. The reason we don't really understand it is that the pathophysiology of it is probably quite complex and it involves things like alterations in how the brain senses normal functions of the GI tract probably in some people a change in their microbiome which might be causing changes in their motility and their ability to relax their GI system when they eat. They might also have visceral hypersensitivity where their body or their brain is paying more attention to the normal digestive functions that they have so it results in them having symptoms even though there's no structural features that we can find when we do um, the standard imaging and investigations. So most people who present with dyspepsia have functional dyspepsia. Probably over 80% of people who go to their GP with dyspeptic symptoms, their symptoms are functional in nature. However, there are a number of other pathologies that present with dyspepsia that also can be important to pick up because they can be uh, relieved or um, successfully treated. With different interventions so some of the other differentials that are important to think about are gastritis or peptic ulcer disease or H. pylori so I always think of those as a spectrum of disease because they all have very similar causes but um, the symptoms don't necessarily tell you how severe the ulceration is in the digestive tract. I also think about patients who are presenting with biliary colic um, or gallstone disease which can often have dyspeptic-like symptoms for some patients. I think about patients might have an malignancy of the upper digestive tract, so patients with esophageal or gastric cancer might present with just dyspeptic symptoms, particularly if it's at the junction and it's not causing a mechanical blockage that would cause dysphagia. Or similarly, digestive tract cancers, um, like in the biliary system or in pancreatic cancer, can present um, in, sometimes even though they're more locally advanced or late, they can cause just dyspeptic symptoms when they're starting to cause issues for patients. And then some of the rarer causes for dyspepsia would be things like celiac disease or chronic pancreatitis, inflammatory disorders of the digestive system like Crohn's disease or sarcoid or amyloidosis, which are all extremely unusual and, and actually quite rare, or things like mesenteric ischemia. So they're the kind of differentials that I'm thinking about when I'm talking to somebody. This lady could have any of those, and I suppose we probably need to hear a little bit more of her history in order to figure out whether she might fit in any of those diagnostic criteria or whether it sounds like it's more functional in nature. So she does say that in the past week she's had one episode
1: of vomiting and two episodes of dark stools. Uh, she does deny hematemesis. She also denies any chest pain, acid brush, dysphagia or regurgitation, as well as weight loss, steatorrhea, or changes in bowel habit. She does admit to regular use of ibuprofen for neck pain, which has been worse lately, but denies any steroid use in the past. She has no medical or surgical history, has a 15-pack year history of smoking and drinks about 10 units of alcohol at the weekend. There's no family history of GI malignancy. What would you like to look for on examination?
0: That history helps clarify a few things for me. Um, the first is that she sounds like she might have had melina. And some of the questions that can be helpful to figure out whether the dark stool is actually melina is actually, it's got a very horrible smell that patients notice is different to usual um, stool. Um, and it can often be very sticky and it can be difficult for them to wipe or to flush away. And particularly if they're not taking any iron supplements, they shouldn't really have any dark stool. Um, so if they're reporting that, that makes me worried that she has GI bleeding and that's an alarm symptom which immediately tells me we're thinking about having to investigate this woman more urgently than uh, somebody who didn't have an alarm symptom. She has some other risk factors for peptic ulcer disease, like you mentioned, so she's been drinking and smoking recently, and that's also something that I I would be thinking about in in somebody who's young like her. So even though she has an alarm symptom, she's still unlikely to have a cancer, but she could well have peptic ulcer disease, which, again, is picked up on investigation. So the other things that we look for in... In dyspepsia, I suppose, on exam, the exam is more to rule out problems rather than to rule them in, so we're not really expecting to find anything on examination, but we will check the vital signs for the patient to make sure that they don't have any obvious signs of hemodynamic instability, which would make you think that this patient might need to go urgently to the emergency department to have their GI bleed investigated. You'd also examine their abdomen looking for any tenderness or um, guarding that would make you think that they might have peritoneal signs, um, which would make you much more concerned that there's an acute abdominal problem going on here rather than something that might be a more chronic problem that you can work up with the patient in the next number of weeks. And then obviously when you're examining the patient's abdomen, you're looking for a mass because obviously that again is an alarm symptom. You're looking for lymphadenopathy, um, particularly in the supraclavicular region, which could be associated with gastric cancer. And you might notice some signs associated with anemia if they've been describing symptoms of anemia in their, in their exam, or you might notice some obvious signs of weight loss. It's unusual for us to actually find anything when we examine patients with dyspepsia, but these are the things we're we're paying attention to not miss. So on exam, she is sitting
1: up, she's alert, um, grossly hemodynamically stable, and she's of increased BMI. You note some signs of iron deficiency anemia, uh, particularly palmar crease and conjunctival pallor. There's no palpable lymphadenopathy. On abdominal exam, you notice a mildly distended abdomen. It's soft with a mild epigastric tenderness, and no evidence of peritonitis or palpable masses. There's also no organomegaly, and bowel sounds are present and unremarkable. So in terms of initial investigations, what would you like to send?
0: Every patient who comes to a, kind of a primary care practitioner, a GP um, complaining of dyspepsia will usually have blood sent because that's important as part of the alarm symptoms to make sure they don't have evidence of anemia or they don't have any evidence of deranged LFTs or obstructive jaundice. That would make you immediately think that they need um, more urgent investigation. You might also think when you're sending off blood tests that you might like to send a TTG, which is tissue transglutaminase, in order to assess for whether they might have celiac disease and might need further investigation from that point of view. The other investigations I suppose to think about when you're um, in a GP practice or maybe in the emergency department and evaluating somebody who might have just had a GI bleed is to think about the Glasgow Blatchford Scale. So this helps us stratify patients in terms of the urgency of which we need to investigate their GI bleed. The Blatchford score includes a measurement of their blood urea nitrogen levels, um, a measurement of their haemoglobin level, their systolic blood pressure, their heart rate and whether they have any uh, melina or syncope at the time that they present to you or whether they have any history of hepatic disease or cardiac disease. Any patients who have an elevated urea or a hemoglobin level that's lower than it should be, or a lower systolic blood pressure than 110 milligrams of mercury or a heart rate above 100, or they're actively having melina or had syncope associated with their GI bleed, or they have significant hepatic or cardiac disease, need to be admitted to hospital for more urgent investigations, which would be an endoscopy. If the patient has had a GI bleed but doesn't have any of those, then they're probably safe to be worked up as an outpatient with a more urgent endoscopy that should take place in the next week or two as an outpatient. I think that can be a very useful um, scoring system for deciding whether patients need to be urgently investigated for their GI bleed or whether it's something that we can do as an outpatient in an expedited manner.
1: So those bloods are sent off and they come back with an FBC showing microcytic anemia. Haemoglobin is 10.2 and MCV is 73. Her LFTs and renal function are normal. Her celiac serology is also negative. She's later referred for an OGD and this shows a one centimetre ulcer with evidence of previous bleeding
0: at D1. What further investigations would you like to do? This lady turns out to have peptic ulcer disease and have a duodenal ulcer as part of, I suppose, the cause for why she's had the dyspeptic symptoms and bleeding recently. At the time of the OGD, she'll have been evaluated by the person doing the OGD to see whether she's got signs of having an acute rebleed or whether it looks like it's an ulcer that's already started to heal um, and therefore is at lower risk of rebleeding and the classification system that's helpful for that is the forest classification system, which briefly to summarize, I suppose if you see a vessel sitting in the base of the ulcer, they're far more likely to rebleed and they might need re intervention and need to be kept in hospital for a period of observation. Patients who rebleed with Julian ulcers are most likely to do that in the first seventy two hours. That's usually the time period we keep them in and keep them on a PPI infusion in order to reduce the risk of rebleeding and to intervene if they do rebleed. So in a patient like this, who has a one centimetre ulcer, if the base is clean and there's no visible vessel in the base, you might be able to discharge them uh, with further therapy. So at the time of the OGD, they'll also have had testing for H. pylori and by means of a CLO test. So that's a biopsy of tissue from the antrum of the stomach. And what we're measuring there is whether H. pylori is producing urea, which sets off a little reaction in the CLO test monitor and changes the colour from yellow to red. So if they're test positive, then that means that they have H. pylori, and you would want to treat that in order to help heal up the Julian ulcer. So you would treat the H. pylori with triple therapy, and then you would continue on their PPI medication twice a day for usually a period of about eight weeks, um, sometimes a bit longer for a gastric ulcer, in order to help heal the ulcer fully. The other thing to mention, I suppose at this point, is that if the ulcer is in the stomach, Um, We always take biopsies at the index endoscopy because when we see an ulcer in the stomach, we're concerned that this could be an ulcerated tumour rather than just a peptic ulcer. Um, So what we do is take biopsies from the margin of the ulcer and then in gastric ulcers we reassess endoscopically. So we always repeat an OGD test so that we can repeat the biopsies, um, make sure that the ulcer is healing up and then make sure that if there's still a persistent ulcer that we've re-biopsied to make sure that there's no cancer underlying that. So
1: a biopsy is taken and test comes back as positive. How will you treat this patient and how
0: will you assess for her treatment response? We'd expect this patient to get better with the treatment that I've already described, which is H. pylori treatment and, and PPI medication. If she has other risk factors for peptic ulcer disease like non anti-inflammatory drugs, we always mention to patients that they have to be very careful taking those in the future and they certainly shouldn't be taking them at the time when they're having their ulcer treated actively um, to heal it if they're smoking we always advise to give up obviously it's good for general health but also it can be a risk factor for persistent ulceration and setting of peptic ulcer disease so it's a good opportunity to do some health promotion with people about smoking and excess alcohol intake as well most patients if they're symptomatically improved with a duodenal ulcer we will then retest to see if they still have h pylori after they've completed the triple therapy and we don't necessarily need to always rescope patients with a duodenal ulcer unlike patients with gastric ulcers as we've discussed
1: So she does go for a follow-up urea breath test, and that shows resolution of infection. She's avoiding NSAIDs at this stage, and she's also engaging with smoking cessation service. So I know you've mentioned some of them, but just to go back on what would be the main risk factors for peptic
0: ulcer disease. Sure, so I suppose H. pylori is the most common cause that we would see in this kind of part of the world. So we always test for that, and we've discussed treating it and following up to make sure that it's been eradicated. But the other thing to think about in terms of peptic ulcer disease pathophysiology is that it's not just excess acid. It's also a dysregulation of the epithelial repair factors and the mucosal barrier that helps prevent ulceration in the stomach. So things like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs um, or NSAIDs can dysregulate that epithelial barrier. That's why they decrease the prostaglandins and they decrease the, the healing that happens in the stomach usually. Other risk factors would be other types of drugs. People who are on long-term steroids can often develop ulceration in their stomach and you need to evaluate for that. People who take cocaine or methamphetamine regularly can also have problems with ulceration in their digestive system. Obviously patients who are on anticoagulant medications are more likely to bleed if they do develop any more minor degrees of ulceration that other people might not present with. So that's an important thing to evaluate for when you're, you're taking history for patients who have peptic ulcer disease. Um, rare cause of ulceration would be in patients who've had previous upper digestive tract surgery. So if they've got a connection between their stomach and their small bowel, like a gastrojejunostomy, which they may have had for bariatric surgery, or they may have had as treatment of an ulcer in the past, they can develop what are called marginal ulcers, which are ulcers that develop at the, the join-up or that anastomosis. Um, and they can be sometimes very challenging to treat because we don't fully understand why marginal ulcers develop after for digestive tract surgery. My hypothesis is that it's related to changes in the microbiome, but we don't really understand that uh, well enough in order to be able to treat it. And sometimes patients who have persistent marginal ulcers um, after upper GI surgery need to have revisional surgery to treat those um, and then i suppose if you start seeing patients who are having recurrent peptic ulceration and you've ruled out all of these other risk factors like smoking and non excess alcohol intake h pylori then you can start thinking about kind of rare causes like inflammatory problems of the digestive system like crohn's disease or sarcoid or amyloid and you should be able to pick those up by biopsying and also talking to your pathologist and letting them know that this is slightly unusual case of ulceration and they might need to think about doing further staining to look for things like amyloid. And then if you're seeing persistent ulceration, the other rare causes that you need to think about are Zollinger-Ellison syndrome. This is where patients have gastrinoma or a neuroendocrine tumour somewhere usually in the duodenum or head of pancreas that's producing excess gastrin and then they can develop ulceration uh, because of that. And that's classically associated with multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 and a very common uh, final med exam question, but very uncommon in clinical practice. We don't see these patients often, but they're the kind of zebras that sometimes we have to think about when patients have recurrent peptic ulceration and you've realised a lot of the other risk factors for it.
1: So what would be the main complications associated with untreated peptic ulcer disease?
0: The two would be bleeding and perforation. So we've already discussed a little bit about the approach to bleeding. The other problem that sometimes patients can present with is perforation. So they've had dyspeptic symptoms, perhaps for a short period of time, or really something that they hadn't noticed, and then they come with an acute perforation of their upper digestive system, uh, usually in the duodenum, sometimes in the stomach, and they might need surgery for that. So they are a different presentation in that they'll present with acute onset exacerbation of their pain or acute onset pain, and they'll have peritoneal signs and often some hemodynamic instability from progressive starts of progressive sepsis developing.
1: And for rare resistant cases of peptic ulcer disease, what would be the surgical options for them and what would be the main risks associated
0: with these surgeries? Yeah, so thankfully we don't really have to do surgery very commonly now for peptic ulcer disease since we've figured out that H. pylori um, is very much a culprit for why people would have had recurrent peptic ulcer uh, disease in the past. And also since we now have proton pump inhibitors which are extremely effective at suppressing acid and helping people heal their ulcers even if they continue to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or other drugs that can cause ulceration. So it's very unusual for us to need to do surgery for peptic ulcer disease. So most commonly in our society, we, we might end up seeing people who've had failed bleeding, intervention for bleeding peptic ulcers. So if somebody's developed a very deep duodenal ulcer on the posterior wall of um, usually D2, they might end up eroding into their gastroduodenal artery and that can cause quite brisk bleeding. So, the options there are usually interventional radiology. So, the interventional radiologist will go in and embolize off the gastroedinal artery, um, and that's usually very effective at stopping bleeding. But in about 10% of people who have that procedure, they'll continue to bleed from collateral vessels or just because the flow rate is so high they haven't been able to successfully decrease the flow in it. Um, and sometimes we might need to go in and operate to open up the duodenum and actually tie off the gastroedinal artery and then close the duodenum up. Um, So that's unusual, but occasionally we do it maybe one or two a year in this hospital. Then people who have marginal ulcers in setting up previous upper GI surgery might need to have further revisional surgery, like we mentioned, in order to remove that anastomosis and reconstruct it to prevent them having ongoing problems with ulceration. Things like vagotomies, which used to be very commonly done to help decrease acid secretion in the stomach and duodenum in the past are really historical surgeries. We do still sometimes see people who live and have had those surgeries done in the 1970s, but the reason we often see them is because they're having difficulties with gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying because of the vagotomy. Um, Their pylorus doesn't empty efficiently. So even though most patients who've had a vagotomy done would have had a pyloroplasty where they cut the muscle so that it is no longer contracted all of the time, they'll still often have difficulties with the motility of their digestive system. So thankfully, those are kind of historic surgeries that are no longer performed in this part of the world. Great. That completes the episode. Thanks very much. Thanks, Susie.